I want us to take our Bibles this morning as we come to this time of worship of our Lord and open them to our study of the book of Revelation. We're returning once again to Revelation chapter 13 as we continue to see the unfolding grace of God to draw His chosen people Israel back to Himself as He uses the unmitigated, unleashed judgments of His righteous wrath during what we know as the seven-year tribulation. And we're currently, really, in this study, getting a bird's-eye view, if you will, a, a heavenly look down, if you will, of what's happening behind the scenes of what's going on on earth during the tribulation period. And there is a particular attention being given to the operation of Satan. As we studied in chapter 12, Satan's ultimate purpose was clearly seen. He is purposed on the complete destruction of any plan of God to save anybody. Satan desires to thwart the plan of God, and particularly within that, he is particularly bent on the destruction of the Jews. Satan attempted to ruin the plan of God at the very creation after God had created the heavens and the earth and the world in which we know along with mankind. He introduced to Adam and Eve the deceptiveness of doubting the truth of God. If they would begin to consider their own ways as more important and begin to doubt what God had told them that they would indeed find true happiness and in fact that is the opposite of what they found. They found death. So Satan has pursued the plan and the people of God all throughout history and all throughout the reading as you read through the Old Testament. Israel has been pursued constantly attempting to exterminate them as the promised line through whom the Messiah would come. Satan attempted to kill Jesus Christ at his birth and his entrance into this world through the Virgin Mary as he instilled in the heart of Herod himself to destroy all those under two. And then finally, he professed victory as Christ hung on the cross to die for the sins of people like you and me. But praise be to God that three days later, Christ rose from the dead. Three days later, Christ vanquished the grave and death could not hold him and he is alive forever. He is in the presence of God the Father, expectantly waiting for that coming day of His triumphant return as King of kings and Lord of lords. Until that day, however, Satan is still being allowed to work. By God's sovereignty and God's providential plan, through the reality of God's desire to glorify Himself above all things, Satan is being allowed by God to do His bidding. And he still desires the souls of men. He desires the annihilation of Israel itself. And so in doing so, he desires the thwarting of God's plan to fulfill his promise to Israel. If he can get rid of Israel altogether, then he in fact nullifies the very promise of God that God made all the way back in the Old Testament to Abraham that he would give him a land, that he would give him a people, that they would have an everlasting kingdom Everlasting king, I should say, on the throne. And so his purposes have been disclosed. We know them very well. Satan's plans have also been exposed. And now 
in our study, when we come to Revelation chapter 13, we see his puppets are being described for us. There is this Trinitarian-like, if you will, axis of evil that is being shown to us where Satan is the head and he is working his means through these other two. We've already seen beast number one back in verses one through ten. He will arise out of the sea of humanity. He will arise to power and carry with him the approval of many other nations. He will be a composite of power and his prowess will be uh, unmeasured as the empires of the earth come together in him and his reign will in fact be global. He will be the political ruler of the world. Satan is behind it all. Satan has given him his power. But there is a second beast that will work in concert with this first beast. And he is introduced to us in verses 11 through 18. Here's how John sees it. He says, And I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb. And he spoke as a dragon. And he exercised all the authority of the first beast in his presence. And he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. And he performs great signs so that even so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast might even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And it causes all, the small and the great, and the rich and the poor, the free men and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one should be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. John now sees this second puppet of Satan. And he is described here as another beast. Same descriptive term is being used as that which was used to describe the first. He is another beast. He too is vicious. He too has the same nature as the first beast, even though he is a different or another one. In other words, his origins are similar, and his nature is just as savage as the first. And yet, as we will see in a moment, they are very different. The first came up out of the sea. You notice that back in verse 1. And I saw a beast coming up out of 
the sea. We understand that as we studied it there to be the sea of humanity in general. In other words, this first beast is a man. He is a human and yet no specific indication as to his national origin. We're not sure from what nation he comes from. I believe that he will be Gentile by way of his heritage. He will not be a Jew by way of his heritage. It will just be a Gentile ruler. But the second beast is a bit different. The text tells us in verse 11 that he arises out of the earth. Out of the earth. The original word used here can carry the idea of the world as a whole. The word gay in the original Greek language can be either the world as a whole in light of humanity as a whole, or or it can have a, a specific land or region that is viewed. And I believe that is what's being viewed here. This is uh, symbolic, if you will, or language being used to say the land of Israel. You say, well, why do you say that? And I'll tell you. Well, back in chapter 12 and verse 17, you notice the dragon was enraged with the woman. We studied that back then, having been thrown out of the presence of God, no longer having access to God himself because Michael and his angels warred with Satan and his demons and threw them out. They were thrown to earth, as it says in verse 9, and they are angry. Satan has a Great wrath, verse 12 of chapter 12 says. So he has no access to heaven, no access to God, and he is desiring to annihilate the woman. We know who the woman is. That is Israel itself, national Israel. And now, in chapter 13 and verse 1, it says, And he stood on the sand of the seashore. The he there is not John, as some commentators believe. It is Satan himself. In the context, it is the one who was in verse 17, the dragon. This is Satan himself, takes his stand on the seashore, and that is just simply the the region in which it is, and one beast comes out of the sea, that is the humanity itself, the people of the earth in general, which is represented here, would be represented here by the Mediterranean Sea, because we're speaking of the Middle East. And the other is out of the earth, which would then be the land of Israel, which would be to his other side. Since Satan is concentrating his efforts on the woman, on Israel. And so if that is accurate in saying that, then this second beast has a Jewish background. The first is Gentile in his... Uh, heritage, this beast is a Jew by way of background, and we'll understand why I believe that as we go on further. And just to say at the outset that he has the desire, Satan's desire to annihilate the Jews, which means he must attract the Jews, which means he needs someone who will attract the Jews, and the one who will attract the Jews is a Jew. So I believe this one has a Jewish background. So the first reality that we are confronted with as we see this second beast is his identity, his identity. And verse 11 begins to unfold his identity for us, at least in general terms. He says, I saw another beast coming up out of the earth and he had two horns like a lamb and he spoke like a dragon. There could be no greater contrast going on here in the wording of 
this verse, as John writes it, as John is seeing it, this beast is first described as being like a lamb. Like a lamb. He has horns like that of a lamb. And if I were to ask any of us in this room this morning to describe for me the character of a lamb, you would no doubt come up with terms like gentle, terms like harmless, soft, terms like uh, innocent. And yet, there could be no doubt that this person would desire that men see him with those characteristics, that they see him as soft and gentle and innocent and harmless, caring. In fact, those Jews today, if you go to Israel today and you spend any time talking to any of the Orthodox Jews over there in Israel or even Orthodox Jews in our own country who are continually waiting upon the Messiah to come, they will no doubt tell you they are anticipating one who will have the very characteristics of the one described as the Lamb of God. Gentle, meek, mild, innocent, harmless. He will come as a ruler for them. That's what they will tell you. And so here in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 11, we see one who is like a lamb, but notice that while he may resemble that of a lamb, he in no way will be characterized by those qualities. Very much like his cohort in rule, beast number one, this second beast will have power. That's what the horns represent, power. That's the idea in Scripture. When you read horns, it's power. And if ten horns of the first beast represented the power of him by way of territory and dominion, in other words, he has this ultimate power over all the earth, this conglomerate of unity of nations which he is most powerful over, and he has this ten horns on seven heads with these crowns of rulership, then it is clear to understand that these two small horns here represent power, not necessarily in territory, but power certainly by way of attested testimony. This isn't power in territory, but it certainly is power by way of spoken testimony. And we will see in verse 13 this lamb-like beast, which is really an oxymoronic term in my mind, he will give attested testimony concerning the first beast. And he will do it by way of miraculous powers in order that he might establish that testimony as being true. So he's like a lamb in projected character, but he is also unlike a lamb, notice, in that he speaks like a dragon. Verse 11, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. So he's like a lamb in his projected character, but he speaks like a dragon. We already know the dragon, don't we? It's none other than Satan himself. We saw that back in chapter 12. So this second beast will... Be known by the character of what he says. Satan is a liar. This beast will be a liar. Satan 
has been a murderer from the beginning. This beast, too, will be a murderer. He will speak lies. He will speak murderous threats. Satan is a God-hater, and so, too, this one will, while appearing to be like a lamb, will be a God-hater. Satan is a deceiver. Satan is duplicitous. Satan comes as an angel of light, but really he is a devourer. He is a lion seeking whom he may devour. He is duplicitous, and this one also will be like Satan. He will be a deceiver. He will be duplicitous in everything he does. And so he will speak in the same way as Satan would speak. Could there be a greater contrast taking place in the language here for us to hear what he is being described as. He is like a lamb, but he speaks like a dragon. No one would rightly fear a lamb. No one. But when this lamb opens his mouth, what comes out is lies and murderous threats, deceptive, duplicitous words, nothing of truth. And so we need to understand what John is seeing right at the outset. There will come upon the scene a man from among Israel. And he will arise to national power. And he will arise by way of some kind of apparent innocence and gentleness. And he will lead the Jews to trust him. And whatever political designation they place upon him, whether it's the title of president, whether it's the title of prime minister, whether it's some other kind of political uh, title, we do not know. But it is for sure that he will, in fact, appear as and be the king in Israel. While he is the spokesman for the dragon, Satan himself, he will be closely associated and aligned to the first beast. In fact... Just to show you this really quickly, and because he is the public spokesman and the worker of miraculous signs, as we will see, he is identified in the rest of the book of Revelation by the title, The False Prophet. The second beast in the rest of Revelation is known by the title, The False Prophet. Just to show you this really quickly, go over to chapter 16 and verse 13. Here we are now. Close to the end, the six bowls of wrath have been poured out. The seventh is coming. Armageddon is about to happen in verse 13. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. So this, there's that triad of evil. You have Satan ruling it all. You have beast number one and the second beast, the false prophet. You say, well, that seems a little vague. That's not so clear yet. We'll turn over to chapter 20 and verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And you say, well, okay, there's those two again, those two titles, just like in chapter 16. It still doesn't seem clear that this beast is the false prophet. And I'll and I say, yeah, it's still not all that crystal clear, but go to chapter 19 and verse 20, and it will be patently clear. And the beast was seized, 
and with him the false prophet who, here you go, performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive in the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. So the false prophet here in chapter 19 and verse 20 clearly is the second beast because he is attributed with the very same things that the second beast is attributed with doing in chapter 13. So all the rest of Revelation from chapter 16 on, the second beast is known by the title, the false prophet. Don't be confused at that. And so we know his identity. We know he will be a man. We know, I believe, he will be a man who rises up out of the nation of Israel. And while he will come across as one who is gentle and kind and nice, he will speak as if he is like Satan. He will be a deceiver, a murderer, a a duplicitous person who only wants to lure in Israel to their demise. So we know his identity. But what about his operation? What about his operation? Chapters 12 through, or verse 12 through 17, we get the false prophet's operation. The false prophet's operation. Just listen to what it says. And he exercises all authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, whose fatal wound was healed. And he performs great signs, so that even he makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast who had, had the wound of the sword and come to life. And there was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast might even speak, and he causes many who do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free, the slaves, the to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one should be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the number of his name or or his name or the number of his name. As I was reading this over and over and over this week in my own study of this, the overwhelming reality continued to be impressed upon my mind that was of the impact of the power that this man will display. The impact upon those who are watching him and those who are seeing what he's doing, the impact that that will have upon those and the result that will come from those who reject the truth. Just so that we fully understand what will be taking place, the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle John, uses a word here to describe these activities as being Repeated and ongoing activities. These are repeated and ongoing activities that this one will do. These are not one-time acts that, that simply convince the masses. No, these are ongoing acts that this man does again and again and again and again. Every time there's opportunity and every occasion that demands it, he will do something. The word is in verse 12 and 13. It is the original word in the Greek, poeo. You don't notice it here readily in the English because it gets translated for us by the words that you see here saying he exercises or he makes or he performs. That's the same word in the original language. 
All those words just tell us these are, these are ongoing. He's continually doing this over and over and over and over again. This is what he does. This is his activity. It is purposeful for deception. None of it is done so that anyone will look at it and go, that's truth. It is all intended for deception. It is all intended for the leading of souls away from God. You say, well, what is it he's doing? Or verse 12 says he exercises all authority of the first beast in his presence. Not far, hard for us to see that. It's clear. He has the same authority as the first beast. We know where the first beast derived his authority from. In fact, over in verse 2 of, or, or verse two of chapter 13, it says, And the dragon gave him his power and his authority, or and his throne, and great authority. So the first beast's power, authority, came from Satan himself, the dragon, and so too this beast also receives his authority from that same source. Don't be confused thinking because of the way the English writes it that it's beast derives his authority from the first beast as if it's a trickle-down effect. That's not what the original language indicates here. This has his power from the same source. It is satanic authority. He has all the power of the first beast, and yet he will display it in a different way. Satan is in control of these two. And so we know that these two men will not be working in competition to each other. They will be working, in fact, in cooperation with each other. And no one will be confused at that. He will exercise the same authority. But notice he will do it, secondly, through the performance of great signs. Verse 13, and he performs great signs. Not confusing, really, for us to understand. It's pretty simple language. This person will have the great power or power to do great works and miraculous things. Notice that the demonstration of this miraculous power has one purpose. What's that purpose? Verse 12, the middle of verse 12. And he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. The purpose, the direction, the point of all of these displays of miraculous power, of all of his efforts, of all of his attempts, is to simply have the earth worship the first beast. Let me see if I can put it in simpler, more clear terms. This beast has been satanically motivated with an evangelistic goal. Satan is now using this beast to evangelize those to his side. That is to say that the full efforts of the second beast, this false prophet, is to bring as many possible into the satanic fold and to encourage those who are already within the satanic fold. The first beast desires to be worshipped. His message and cause is preached and attested to by the second beast through his miraculous signs. 
You say, well, what's the content of his message? I mean, what's the message he's going to preach and attest to about the first beast as he does these miracles? What's he going to say? What is his, quote unquote, satanic gospel? What's the content? Notice it is a counterfeit resurrection. Verse 12 says, and he will make the earth and all those who dwell in it worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. This is counterfeit resurrection. His gospel message, according to the satanic gospel, will be a counterfeit Messiah who has a counterfeit resurrection being preached through a counterfeit gospel attested to, listen, by real signs and real wonders. Verse 13 says he will perform great signs so that even he makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. Yet another mockery of God's great work. As you read through the Old Testament, you come to the first and second Kings, you notice Elijah is in there and Elijah has a battle with the prophets of Baal, the false prophets of of their false gods, and Elijah calls down fire from heaven as God consumes the altar, the offering, and everything else, including the prophets of Baal as they worship their God. And here this false prophet will, in fact, be able to counterfeit that very thing. And all of this will be most convincing to the Jewish nation. Say, why? Why is it going to be convincing to them? Because this man will do what Jesus Christ refused to do when he walked on the earth. You say, really? He's going to refuse to do or do what Jesus refused to do? What was that? What did Jesus refuse to do when he walked on the earth? Oh, the religious leaders of the day would come to Jesus Christ as he walked on the earth, as he was preaching the true gospel. The Pharisees demanded from Jesus what? Show us a sign. Show us a sign. Matthew 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees said to him, to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Jesus answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. What sign is that? For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You want a sign? God's going to give you a sign. The sign will be a resurrection. The resurrection of the Messiah. You will put him in the ground and three days later he will rise from the dead. That will be the sign. And Jesus said to those men of that day asking for that. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it. Why? Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Jonah came and said, listen, you're wicked. You need to repent of your evil. And they repented of that. And they praised God for what he had done. And yet you will not worship God. That's what Jesus was saying. You refuse to know the Messiah. You refuse the gospel. You reject the gospel. Even though someone greater than Jonah is here, you reject. 
Paul said to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 1.22, Jews still seek signs. And here in Revelation chapter 13, this lamb-like beast will give them all the signs they demand. Over and over and over and over again, even impersonating Elijah the prophet. And the ultimate goal is what? The ultimate goal is deception. Look at verse 14. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it will be give, was given him to perform in the presence of the beast. The signs, albeit real, they're not fake. These aren't fake things happening. These aren't computer-generated images that are taking place. These are real things, real signs. They have their ultimate goal of being deceptive. The ultimate goal is the very characteristic and outworking of Satan himself. His very nature, his very heart is deception. And as I was reading this, I couldn't help but think about us as people, as Christians, and the need for us as we think about this, as we hear these things, for us to be warned here, to take a pause, to sit for just a second, and be warned by what God is saying, lest we think that we could never be vulnerable to lesser deceptive activity. Listen, etch this truth in your heart. Etch it in your mind. Mark this down. Culpable failure on the part of you to respond to the truth will lead you to overt and covert yielding to satanic lies that will in fact and can result in both spiritual and judicial blindness. Let me say it a little simpler for us. If you fail to respond to the word of God, if you willfully refuse to respond to the truth of the word of God, then all you have left is the lie of Satan. That's all you have left. And the lie of Satan leaves you spiritually blind. Do you know what we say oftentimes, Christians? No problem. No problem. I get it. No problem. Listen, I already believe the Bible. I won't be culpable of being drawn away to a lie. I already believe what the Scriptures teach. I don't listen to false teachers. Remember, I said this ought to warn us. Let me read for us what God said to Israel about the nature of false teachers. You can either just sit and listen or turn with me back to Deuteronomy chapter 13. This is very important for us, folks. Deuteronomy chapter 13. God is laying out for Israel His commands, what they are to do how they are to exercise life as they follow Him. In fact, in chapter 12 and verse 28, He says, Be careful to listen to all the words which I command you. 
Be careful, listen to the words which I command you in order that it may be well with you and with your sons who are after you forever. For you will be doing what is good and right in the sight of the Lord. If what? If you listen to my words. So we get down to chapter 13. Well, really before that, the end of chapter 12, verse 32, whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. That little phrase is very important. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Let God's word be what God's word says. Don't adjust it. Don't challenge it. Don't come against it. Don't add to it. Don't take away whatever I command you. Be careful to do it. And then he comes to chapter 13 and he says, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you, And gives you, notice, a sign or a wonder. And the sign or the wonder comes true. Here's the point. You got somebody who's in your midst. Who says, hey, I got something for you from God. You got somebody in the world today who comes and says, hey, I got something from God. And in fact, it comes true. Concerning which he spoke to you. Verse 2 saying. Let us go after other gods. Whom you have not known. Let us serve them. Verse 3. You shall not listen to the words of the prophet. Even though they come true. You shall not listen to the dreamer of dreams. Even though his dreams may be true. For the Lord your God is testing you. To find out if you love the Lord your God. With all your heart. With all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear Him. And you shall keep His commandments. Listen to His voice. Serve Him and cling to Him. Notice in verse eight, it gets, or verse six, it gets even a little more close to home. If your brother or your mother's son or your son or your daughter or your wife you cherish or your friend who is in your very soul entice you secretly saying, let us go and serve other gods whom neither you nor your fathers have known or the gods of the peoples who are around you, near you, far from you, from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth, you shall not yield to him or listen to him. And your eye shall not pity him, nor shall you spare or conceal him. Listen, if someone who is speaking things contrary to what God has said, they are known by God as a false prophet. And if they are saying things that are contrary to what God has said or outside the realm of what God has said, according to what God has said, they are to be considered as a false prophet and they are not to be followed. In fact, in the Old Testament times, it was even more severe than that. If you look at verse 5 and following, the prophet or the dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. Why? Because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God. Verse 9, but you shall surely kill him. Talking about his own family members. 
you shall kill them. And your hand shall be first against them to put them to death. And afterwards, all the people. Why? Verse 11. Then all Israel will hear about it and be afraid and will never again do such a wicked thing among you. You think God's serious about false prophets? You think God's serious about you listening to his word and only his word? Even if what is being said outside of his word is true? You say, I don't listen to false prophets. Is heaven for real? Seems to be pretty popular in our day and age. Been books and movies written about it. Do you need to know? Do you need to go to a movie, read a book of somebody who supposedly went to heaven and came back to tell you that heaven is for real? God has told you heaven is for real. That's all you need to know. And even if they're right, God says, don't listen to them. Listen to me. People say, well, God told me so. Really? I don't need to hear from somebody else telling me God told them. God told me right here in the word of God. What he said, that's all I need. This is a warning to us, folks. This is a warning to us. Experiential things, things outside the word of God, all of those things fit within this realm. They may be true, but none of that matters. God is saying, listen, you listen to me and me only. Back to Revelation chapter 13, because in these final days, Israel is going to be tested. Those who follow will be personally culpable of their blindness. Why? Because they failed to respond to the truth found only in Jesus Christ. They reject Christ and all they have left is the lie. And those who follow will be commanded by the second beast. Verse 14 To make an image of the first beast. Create an icon. That's the word here, icon. It's used really, carries two ideas. An icon is a representation and an icon is a revelation. Christ is the image of God, the Bible tells us. Christ is the icon of God. He is both the representation of God and Christ is the revelation of God. And so, too, here in Revelation 13, this image will not only be in the likeness of the first beast, it will represent the first beast, but also it will be a manifestation that is to be worshipped. You notice? There was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast. This miraculous worker, the second beast, this false prophet, will even have the power to give breath to this one that is an image. And so the reason that men will worship this one is not because of his political prowess or his military power or his global economic wisdom. No, all men will worship him because they have rejected the truth and this one appears to be the one who was dead and now lives. Christ came and actually died 
Christ came and actually rose again, the first beast will make this same claim. The first beast will have a counterfeit resurrection. I was reading this week one of the commentators. Here's how he described this man. I think it's helpful for us, so I just want to read it. He says, quote, The role of the false prophet will be to make the new religion appealing and palatable to men. No doubt it will combine all the features of the religious systems of men, will appeal to man's total personality, and will take full advantage of his carnal appetite. The dynamic appeal of the false prophet will lie in his skill in combining political expediency with religious passion, with self-interest, or his self-interest with benevolent philanthropy, lofty sentiment, or sentiment with blatant lies, Moral platitude with unbridled self-indulgence. His arguments will be subtle. They will be convincing and appealing. His oratory will be hypnotic. He will be able to move the masses to tears and at the same time stir them up to a frenzy. He will control the communication media of the world, will skillfully organize mass publicity to promote his ends. He will be the master of every promotional device and every public relations gimmick. He will manage the truth with guile beyond words, bending it, twisting it, and distorting it. Public opinion will be his, to his command. He will mold world thought, shape human opinion like potter's clay. His deadly appeal will lie in the fact that what he says will sound so right. It will sound so sensible, so exactly what unregenerate men have always wanted to hear. Unquote. I think he's right. This man will be the ideally fitted spokesman of Satan. Quite a description. The first beast with global political rule. Second beast taking his place as the head of a global apostate religion. Rejecting Christ, embracing Satan. And the deception, by the way, will be so rampant that now people will ask to formally be identified with the mark of their new God. Notice verse 16. And it causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free men and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand and their forehead. In the original language, it's, it's somewhat difficult to really know what or who is behind the getting of this mark. Most of our translations say he. The word can be translated it. Uh, is it the beast that causes? Is he the one who causes these to get the sign? Is it forced upon them? Or is it the deceptive worship of the people that now, because they worship this beast, want to be so identified with him that they receive a sign? I think the grammar in the original language suggests that this is the second. It is their Worship of this beast so enamored with him that they want to now be identified with him that now they willingly, through that worship, through the deception, it causes all of them to take on the mark. Those deceived worshipers are now described as 
those who have the desire to be so identified with this one they worship. And so these earth dwellers become beast worshipers by their own choice. You say, how so? Because they've rejected the truth. They've turned their backs on the truth and they are so proud of it, they want to be clearly identified with this one. And so in the first beast, you have a political allegiance. In the second beast, you have now this religious affiliation all linked now to their economic livelihood. Verse 17, this mark is the way in which those who have it will provide for their life. And he, that is, this mark provides that no one should be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark. So this will be, in effect, a boycott, if you will, against all those who refuse the identity of the beast. Everything common for life, everything common to transact everyday goods in life will demand the use of the mark. And if you have refused to have the mark, you will not have any means for getting anything. Political alliance, religious affiliation, and now economic global world system. This is the ultimate cashless world. We're not in the tribulation now, but our world is quickly moving in that direction. It's not all that it's terrible, bad, that you should check out of all of those kinds of things. The fact of the matter is this is just what's happening in our day and age. It's all moving towards that end. Even now, we're becoming more and more of a cashless society. Every one of us in here who has a bank account probably has a debit card in your wallet to go to a machine and you can get cash out if you need it, but you don't even need to do that. You can just go and swipe your card through a machine, which will take care of all your debts and be paid for. Your bills will be paid through the bank account, which you have. In fact, most of us who have jobs have direct deposit. You don't even see a check. Their bank just electronically transfers money to your bank. Voila, cashless money. In fact, in recent years, there have been studies done whereby there have been recommendations made on laser identification marks. Laser identification marks put upon people's bodies as a means of combating identity theft. It's coming. All of these are trends in our day. But we're talking about the tribulation. And in the tribulation, they will reach their ultimate climax. Whatever the technology is then, I don't know what it will be then, but whatever it is, it will be used to mark each of the followers of the beast with a permanent mark. And it'll either be his name or his number. It'll either be marked on your forehead or on your right hand, whatever it is, there'll be the mark of that which is a mark which identifies who he is. And then it says in verse 18, here is wisdom. Here is wisdom. That's simply to say that people who are alive in that day need to be wise. This is wisdom. This is Skillful living. This is discernment. You want to recognize what's happening and you want to be able to identify the number when it comes down the line. How does a person know it's the Antichrist? Here is wisdom. 
Let him who understands calculate the number of the beast. For the number is that of a man. His number is 666. What does that number mean? Well, you can read at infinitum as to the explanations of this number. All kinds of people try to do numerology, try to attach numbers to letters and all these kinds of things. I even had a seminary prof show us when I was in school that Barney, the purple dinosaur, could be the Antichrist under this numerology. Some of you parents are going, I can see the correlation. What is this number? You can read all that stuff. I don't think it's profitable to read all that. I don't think that's what God's trying to tell us here, that we can try to figure out exactly who this man is. After all, Jesus said, listen, you don't need to know all that stuff, or God would have told us. All we need to know is exactly what God told us, and this is wisdom right here. So suffice it to say, people living during the tribulation are going to have some kind of way, or at least those who seek wisdom, they're going to have to be discerning in order to identify the the Antichrist and his brand upon others. And apparently, this number is in some way that they can recognize him and who he is. It is the number corresponding to a man. That's what he says, for the number is that of a man. No, at least in Scripture, God's number is seven. The perfect number is seven. God created in seven days. Seven is God's number. Man's number is six. Man was created on the sixth day. Man is represented here within this number six. This is everything man. This is man, man, man. Six, six, six. It's, it's all man. None of God. There isn't anything divine here. This is man, 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 man. This is God, God. This is godless, 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 godless. This is the number of a man. It's it's man's things, man's things, man's things. You want to identify the Antichrist? It's all about humanity. It's all about man being God. It's all about godlessness. It's all about Satan setting himself up. It's all about self, 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 self. It's the number of the man. It's man, 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 man. Anti-God, anti-God, anti-God. That's wisdom. So here in Revelation chapter 13, verse 11 to 18, you have global rule, global religion, and deception at every level. This is what the final three and a half years are going to be like. The tribulation. The false religion, the false form of that religion that is coming together rejects biblical truth. And it deceives with lies. This is the final form of deception. Mimicking God, trying to act as if it's godly, trying to look like the prophets of God, trying to look like God himself, even being allowed by God in his ultimate sovereignty to do some miraculous things so that those who are there are tested. Even our world. Quickly moving toward the final satanic kingdom. And so you know what that means for us? As believers here now, right now, today, that means that we have a, a serious encouragement by God through this very text 
that we are to be faithful to proclaim the saving gospel of Jesus Christ while it's still possible. It's not as if there will be no gospel during the tribulation. We're going to see that next time we get into this. You notice in chapter 14, the real lamb is standing. John sees the real lamb and he sees the witnesses of God and he even sees the angel, an angel of God, flying through the heavens proclaiming the gospel of God. We have the opportunity right now because we know these things. We know what the deceiver does and we know what the truth is. We know what the real gospel is. And so we have a privilege today and a, 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 an encouragement by God through this text upon us today to be those who faithfully proclaim the saving gospel of Jesus Christ while we still have breath. So that others might know Christ and not be deceived. What an incredible time. We'll get more next time. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your provision. We thank you that you are still working to call your promised people Israel to yourself. One day it will be acute. One day in that seven year period of time, all the judgments, all the wrath of you being poured out, all the deception that's being allowed by you is to draw them to you, to separate the wheat from the chaff. So that you indeed will do as you promised and fulfill your promise. In Christ, through his saving death for sin on the cross, we are the glad recipients of that because you've drawn us to yourself and you've made us your own. Lord, we need not be frightened by these things. We need not be overwhelmingly immovable because we see even the undergirdings of these things in our world today. But we need to be motivated by them to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with a dying world. Each one of us here in this room has friends, relatives, family who don't know Christ. Lord, may that be our desire, our goal, just simply to be faithful instruments in your hand to share the truth. And we pray that they would not reject it that they would not buy the lie, believing they're okay without Christ. So convict of sin, convict of the judgment to come. Give them the gift of repentance, Lord, that they might know you in Christ alone. Thank you for your servant, John, and the things we've learned this morning. Use them in our life for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.